this is Wednesday night chapel. And if you grew up in the Church of the Nazarene like I did and some others of you did, this is prayer meeting night. Uh, get together, come out to church, have a grand time in the Word, talk to the Lord, learn something. God answers prayer. And here we are tonight. We're gathered together to worship, to meditate on the Word, to learn something, and to find out, yeah, God still answers prayer, doesn't he? Our call to worship is on the screen. Say it with me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You're drawing the water tonight. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you for that we are together in your house. Thank you that you are already here, that you've already been preparing over the minutes and the hours and the days for this time and this moment. We ask that you come now, work on every heart, minister to every soul, grow every faith, and glorify yourself in the doing. Bless our speaker tonight as Dr. King brings the message later. Bless all of us as we raise to you a sacrifice of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Bow your heads with me. All we need is you. I am. Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, our Holy One, and the lover of our souls. We cry out to you tonight what the angels in heaven taught us to cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. We are in your presence tonight, delivered from the power of sin and death by your power tonight, praising you by your spirit tonight. And Lord, we're in agreement with the Apostle John. He taught us it was okay to pray for good health, and so we lift up those physical needs tonight and pray for restoration to health. But more than that, with that Apostle, we ask that all would be well with our souls in the presence of Holy Holy. That we would be faithful to your call, to your word, and your will that we would by faith walk in your truth and that we would be a people characterized by lives of holiness and love and of all the things the world would throw at us that we would be satisfied with that and be at peace. To that end, O Holy One of Israel, we seek your grace, your goodness, and your power. But also, Lord, we'd be remiss tonight if we didn't bring a couple of needs before you and ask that everyone here would lift it up with me. We pray for that online student today who's facing the loss of a dearly loved one. And we pray your peace and comfort on them. Extend your grace to that family. 
We pray for our brother in Christ, a campus student who just lost his father. We ask, Lord, that you bring your grace and peace and comfort to bear on his life and upon his family. Remind them again this was a home-going and that there will be a grand family reunion one day. And Lord, help us to take up the challenge that we not just work for you, but that we walk with you. Let us be characterized as followers of our Lord Jesus, his disciples, but also his brothers, his sisters, his co-laborers in the kingdom, his family. To that end, we lift up this service of worship and praise to you, and Lord, also the time and the word that we're going to receive in just a few moments. Teach us to more effectively, more lovingly, more faithfully walk with you. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. And all the people said, Amen. You may be seated. We are privileged tonight to hear the breaking of the bread of life from Dr. Tom King. He's going to come now and, and minister the word to us. Come, Dr. King, share with us tonight. Maybe introduce your special guest while you're at it. After looking at the text for this evening, which I'll read in a moment, I'm a little anxious that my grandbaby is here to listen to it. <laughs> it's one of those rated R portions of the Old Testament. Uh, but my, uh, my children and grandchild, Kayla and Grant and Rinna, are, are all here, and I'm very, very thrilled that they can be with us. If you were here on Monday evening, the uh, Christian education prof warned you that the Bible and theology profs like to read a lot of Bible. <laughs> I'd like, uh, for tonight's text, I'd like to read for you all of 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 19. <laughs> but we don't have time for that. So we're just going to read an excerpt out of chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, verses 7 to 14, and then we're going to jump down to 21 to 32. 2 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 7. David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight, and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of this disgrace? And what about you? You'd be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, 
he raped her. Then down at verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Now, I need to point out at this point that the Septuagint, and all of you who have had your Bible classes, don't need an explanation of what that is. But for the rest, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint adds at this point, when King David heard all this, he was furious, but he would not punish Amnon because he loved him. Most of our translations don't have that addition, but the New American Standard does. He would not punish Amnon because he loved him. Verse 22, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his officials please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, So he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have not I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes, and lay down on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shimeah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's expressed intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. How do you handle frustration and stress and personal pain when someone wrongs you or hurts you, or betrays you, how do you respond? Ironically, too often, we end up striking out against someone we love. You know the old stereotype of the stressed father who comes home from work and kicks the dog, yells at the children, and acts like a grouch toward his wife. Now, in our home, I've tried to avoid that kind of hurtful behavior by seeking out outlets for anger and frustration which don't result in multiplying the problem by hurting more people, especially loved ones. I've shared before that in the early days of our marriage, one of the outlets I used to vent my frustration 
was to smash and crush empty plastic milk jugs in the garage. I would beat them till my knuckles were bloody and kick them around the garage till my legs wore out. They call it empty plastic milk jug therapy. Now, I suppose if I was a Christian education prof, I'd have a bunch of empty plastic milk jugs for all of you to take home tonight. Sorry, that's not the case. I'm a Bible and theology prof. Now, such coping skills, whether they're actually healthy approaches to stress and pain or not, simply do not suffice when our experiences overwhelm us when the pain of sin and evil simply becomes too much to bear. What should Christians do when wrongful and hurtful actions become more than we can handle? How is the Christian supposed to respond to the oppression of sin and evil in our world? The Bible clearly reflects the human situation of evil and pain and presents God's response as a challenging model which Christians are called to follow. The particular text for this evening only adds to my frustration regarding this question of how to respond to wrongdoing in our midst. For a number of years, I have struggled with the biblical text of 2 Samuel 13 and its surrounding context. The text continues to make me restless and unsettled. In the words of a once infamous Star Trek character, it tasks me. Now see, those of you who laughed, only the true Trekkies can recognize where that line is buried among the great original films. The whole of 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 19 centers around the character of Absalom, one of the sons of King David. The reason I labor over this material is because of the silence in the text. There are two characters who are particularly silent during significant moments in the story when I wish they would speak up. One of the silent characters is King David. Now, he does speak at times in this section of Scripture, but not at the times when I think it's most crucial. During those critical times, he is silent. The second character whose silence is most unnerving is God. God doesn't speak at all in the account of Absalom in chapters 13 to 19 of 2 Samuel. In this account, people speak about God, they refer to God, but with one exception of one verse in which the narrator interprets God's action, the Lord is not involved through word or deed in the events of 2 Samuel 13 to 19. The account of Absalom constitutes a vivid illustration of the chaotic and proliferating effect of sin. The picture really begins two chapters before, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, with the familiar account of King David's act of adultery with Bathsheba. You recall, as a result of that sin, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and this occurred while Uriah, her husband, was serving in the king's army and off fighting the king's battles. Now, in order to protect his reputation, King David arranged for Uriah to suffer a fatal accident. And then David marries Bathsheba. In response to this account, 
prior to the Absalom stories, the Lord did send the prophet Nathan to David with a story of conviction and judgment. And it is clarified that David has become an adulterer, a murderer, and is living a lie. Just one chapter later, according to New Revised Standard Time, we're introduced to Absalom, who has a beautiful sister named Tamar. Absalom was one of David's sons by a wife prior to Bathsheba. In this account, we read that Amnon, a son of David by yet another wife, thus half-brother to Absalom and Tamar, Amnon commits the violent act of raping his half-sister Tamar. Who needs cable TV? Just read the Old Testament. You can readily see how these accounts present ideal material for modern television soap operas. Adultery, murder, lying, multiple lovers, rape, and we still have six chapters to go. Imagine the possibilities. Palestine Place. Oh, my royal children. As the kingdom turns. It's at this point, after the rape of Tamar, that the first unexpected silence is encountered. The great King David, who has since been confronted in regard to his own sin and has repented, says nothing to his deviant and distraught children. Amnon has moved from lust to loathing after defiling his half-sister. Tamar is broken with shame, and Absalom is filled with hatred for his half-brother. As if to highlight our frustration over David's silence, it's that addition in the Septuagint that I highlighted in verse 21 that accentuates this concern. When King David heard these things, he became angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon. The narrator intentionally highlights David's inaction emphasizing his lack of response to the evil which has erupted among his children. The story continues by describing how Absalom nurtured his hatred for two years and then arranged for the murder of his brother Amnon. After having Amnon killed, Absalom fled outside of Israel. And once again, the silence of King David is noticeable. The narrator tells us that David mourned for his son, yearned for Absalom. His heart went out to Absalom, but despite this longing for his son, the estrangement between David and Absalom becomes most evident. In chapter 14, David has to be pressed to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem. And when David consents, we're told he declares Absalom must go to his own house and not come into the king's presence. When the two are finally reunited, the encounter is described as only a brief moment in which Absalom bows before David. David gives his son a kiss. And this is immediately followed in chapters 15 through 18 by the story of Absalom acting to take over his father's throne and steal his kingdom. 
This rebellion eventually ends in Absalom's death at the hands of David's general, Joab. David's failure to confront his sons after they were involved in rape and murder respectfully leaves the reader without any model of how one should respond to such evil in this world. Clearly, the text is not intended to provide such a model at this point. As readers were left with the shattering effects of sin in the world of King David. Adultery, murder, rape, murder again, and finally open rebellion against the Father's kingdom. The message of this passage of Scripture seems to present us with a strong picture of the chaotic and destructive impact of sin. The text provides a vivid illustration of the devastating effects of sin unchecked. It cries out for resolution and some means of reconciliation. The text dares to describe for us images of corruption, brokenness, and deterioration in the family and kingdom of ancient Israel's greatest human monarch. If sin creates that kind of havoc in the life of one who is described as a man after God's own heart, what chance have we in this fallen world? This brings us to the other silent character in the text. What has God to say about the pain and devastation in the story of Absalom? As previously mentioned, the account of 2 Samuel 13 to 19 does not include a response from God through word or prophet or otherwise. The reader is left to look elsewhere. For examples of God's response to sin and evil in our world, we're compelled to search other parts of Scripture for an indication of how God might respond to such wickedness in the world. My search is motivated by how readily I can understand the story of Absalom and the devastating effects of wrongdoing. I understand the anger of Absalom and his consuming desire for vengeance and the need to release his pain. I hear Absalom cry, he raped my sister, what's a brother to do? How often have we been frustrated by the stresses in our society. More significantly, how often have we been hurt by the wrongful actions of others resulting in harm to us or to our loved ones? It's been 20 years since my younger brother's estranged wife and his young children were brutally raped and murdered by a man who subsequently took his own life. I read the court transcripts which detailed the gruesome event. I can't imagine how my brother functioned with that kind of wound. How as a Christian was he to respond to such sin and evil? I've read materials that he has written which graphically vented his anger against the person who committed the crime. And in a public setting, 
in downtown Seattle, surrounded by stunned onlookers. I once held my brother's large and strong frame when he collapsed into my arms, releasing groans and bellows emanating from pain deep within his soul, producing haunting sounds which echoed through the city. I heard him cry, He raped and killed my children. What's a father to do? How does God respond to the wrongs in his creation? What if God's children, like David's, hurt each other, raped each other, killed each other, outright rebelled against their father's kingdom by trying to take it over? One response from God appears to be consistent with Absalom's violent reaction against Amnon. We're all too familiar with the stereotyped image of the angry God of the Old Testament. You know the devastating plague which God sent against Israel when they made and worshipped the golden calf. Recall the Lord's response to the action of Korah, who led a rebellion against God's chosen leaders Moses and Aaron. God exacted punishment against them by having the earth open up and swallow the households of Korah. The text describes fire from the Lord consuming more of the rebels. The biblical text does not hide God's response of violent anger. Other examples include, as we know in the account of Genesis, the flooding of the entire earth. The destructions of Israel and Judah in the hands of Assyria and Babylon, respectively, as proclaimed by the prophets. So is this God's model for us? Is God's definitive response to sin and evil in the world one of anger and destruction? Was Absalom's violence appropriate in response to Amnon's sin? Of course we recognize we are not God. Divine anger and violence have their proper explanations in relationship to God's sovereignty, divine justice, and retribution against sin. Who are we to question God's handling of his creatures? Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul all use the metaphor of the potter and his clay to remind us the Creator has the authority to do as He wills with His creatures. Nevertheless, the Bible also reveals that such truths are overwhelmed by yet another response from God. Wrath and punishment are not the only ways in which God responds to the sin and evil in this world. A more profound response is interwoven throughout the entire biblical revelation. It is expressed in numerous passages. For example, Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. In response to Israel's sin, the prophet declares this word from the Lord. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you? O Israel, how can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God, 
and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The response of mercy and forgiveness conveys a painful and demanding reality. The one who is hurt must take in the pain of that sin which is directed against him or her or a loved one. If Absalom were to react to Amnon with mercy, Absalom would have to take in and endure the pain of knowing his dear sister had been shamefully defiled. The response of mercy follows the ideals of statements attributed to Christ, such as, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And love your enemies. And in Paul's exhortation, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We all know the greatest manifestation of the response of mercy and forgiveness in the face of sin is revealed to us in the death of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew uniquely records the scene of the crucifixion by describing an earthquake as Jesus breathed his last on the cross. The centurion at the scene and those who were with him watching over Jesus responded to the earthquake with fear, acknowledging that Jesus was surely God's Son. The mention of the earthquake and fear echo in my mind the passages which mention the quaking of the earth in the Old Testament. Out of 23 references to the earth quaking in the Old Testament, 19 of them explicitly relate the quaking of the earth to God's wrath and judgment. Due to such a dominant association of earthquakes with wrath and judgment from God, I cannot help but imagine Matthew's description of the moment of Jesus' death as another possible outburst of God's anger. As if the Almighty, having endured the rejection and the mocking and the spitting and the beating and the crucifixion of His only begotten Son, finally breaks into fury. The earth quakes as if God would cry out, Enough! They've killed my son. I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will destroy these haughty creatures who dare defy their Creator. I hear God cry, They killed my son. What's a God to do? But that's not the way it happens. In contrast, God takes in all the pain, and love swallows all the hurt. The gospel does not read, for God so hated the world, or for God was so angry with the world. No, the gospel of John proclaims to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn 
the world, but in order that the world might be saved. God takes in the pain and in Christ suffers the cross. Forgiveness and reconciliation are returned for evil and sin. God's love takes in the pain and returns reconciliation. Death swallows up, is swallowed up by resurrection. We believe in a God who dares to call us to pick up a cross and follow him in death and resurrection. God calls us to respond to sin and evil by taking in the pain it may cause and returning forgiveness and love. Dorothy Sayers reminds us that God has not called us to a task which he has not experienced firsthand. She writes, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. God has called us to respond to sin and evil with mercy and compassion, forgiveness, and love. The source and never-ending power which provides us strength for such an impossible task comes from the one who has gone before. Grant us, O Lord, the empowerment to live as Christ. You stand with me for the benediction. O Lord, empower us as your children to absorb the evils of this world and to return love and reconciliation. Enable us to live within yet above this fallen world. By the power of your Holy Spirit, let us spread your mercy and compassion that it might overwhelm the wrongs which surround us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.